Hey, what's up? It's your boy, Corey Deion Lewis, founder of The Healthy Project and host of The Healthy Project podcast. My mission is to bring awareness to health and wellness concerns that are impacting our communities. On this podcast, you'll learn strategies to improve your health from health professionals from around the world that are trying to make an impact in people's lives. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Healthy Project Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Dion Lewis. Uh, I got a special guest in the building today. Really excited to get into our conversation. I have Dr. Miriam Jernigan Nuosi. Did Noesi. I say that? <laughs> Noesi. Noesi. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Great. So, um, like like all guests, and I'm I'm really interested to get into um, this conversation about uh, diversity and, and things like that. What we we've, we've talked about before, but if if you can, just kind of tell the audience a little bit about yourself and and what do you do? Sure. Um, so I'm a licensed professional psychologist um, by training. I am also an assistant professor of psychology. So I'm in the Atlanta, Georgia area, and I am in the, the psychology department at Agnes Scott College, which is a small, traditionally women's arts, liberal arts institution in Decatur, Georgia. And in addition to that, um, do a ton of consulting through my own agency, Jernigan and Associates Consulting. Perfect. Perfect. So you, you got a lot, you got a lot going on. so you know when we got connected through dr marnie white you did some things specifically with with yale some some research there Mm -hmm. um can you kind of talk about that a little bit and um what you learned from that experience yes and thank you um to marnie for that i actually um transitioned i was in the boston area completing my sort of clinical hours related to my psychology degree and what typically happens for psychologists is we have a ton of requirements with regard to you know getting these direct face-to-face hours that allow us to become licensed to offer direct services what gets lost though i think in some of the advanced training is the research-based training and so as a psychologist who was working in hospital settings I sought um, a competitive research-based fellowship through the Yale University School of Medicine, which was specifically designed for psychologists to gain additional experience in translational research and intervention science, which was something I was interested in. In other words, developing programs, right, interventions. And for me, the interest was about understanding the the intersections of mental and physical health outcomes, and specifically for traditionally underrepresented racial groups. I was working in a children's hospital as a mental health provider, also noticing that many of the youth that were referred to me also had significant health-related concerns, in addition, you know, especially related to thinking about um, healthy eating and weight. And so the work that I did at Yale was actually within um, a program with Dr. Marnie White, where they were studying things like binge eating disorder in particular and other kind of eating and weight related concerns. And I just was really fortunate for three years um, to have exposure to that environment and to be able to focus though on my interests, which was at that time working with black adolescent girls um, through their school-based clinics and the uh, New Haven setting and the Department of Adolescent Medicine to really think about, you know, what are the disparities we're seeing, right, relative to to weight in particular and Black girls, how come no one's addressing this and how might I use both my understanding of behavioral health, right, to really work alongside medical providers to 
develop interventions that would be more responsive and perhaps have different and better outcomes. Right. Right. And, and I, you is from, you noticed that it wasn't that they weren't, they didn't know how to eat healthy or it wasn't the fact that they, they, everybody knows the fruits and vegetables and the exercise, but it was more to it. Can you explain like what, what was it that you saw um, or realized that these, these young black girls weren't what kind of care they weren't getting or what, what was the disconnect between the family and the provider? Yeah. And I think that th- that's a piece of it is, is, a, you know, a disconnect. If I sort of think about traditional medicine and the approach to, to, again, the increased attention when I was going through my training on childhood obesity, right. And, and mm-hmm. thinking about the experiences of youth. It's a very traditional medical model of, as, to your point, sort of thinking about, you know, calories in and, and, and um, output, right. Exercise. Right. Uh, so often we would connect youth to, you know, nutritionists and, 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 and providers would really sort of speak to the idea of, you know, behavioral activation. So maybe, you know, exercise more, walk, et cetera. Um, and there, for me, the disconnect, even from the, the medical model, is really understanding the environments, the experiences, right? All the context that's relevant as you're making, you know, these sort of blanketed recommendations for folks, uh, in particular, underrepresented groups like Black girls. And so I was noticing in the research and wanting to really investigate the experiences. So what we talk about is the social determinants of health outcomes, right? Right. The context, the environment. Um, And from, as a psychologist, from a lens that allowed me to go more in depth and thinking about what is it that we mean when we talk about culturally responsive treatment? Like, what does that mean? Certainly Mm. I had seen examples of some attempts to, you know, focus or target black girls with regard to eating and weight. And so there'd be, you know, things like let's use hip hop music, which, or, you know, in an an attempt to attract families, right. And youth of color that felt very superficial and in Mm. some ways stereotypical um, to me, you know, with regard to intervention. And so my work really, yeah, as a, as a psychologist who works with people, right. I get to know you, I explore the context, really marrying for me that understanding with, okay, if we're wanting folks, if, if you know, the recommendation, there are some recommendations that might be useful, how do we connect, right? Because I was hearing from families of color that, you know, they were going into medical appointments and feeling like they were being talked down to. Mm-hmm. Um, the assumption is that they, you know, didn't have information that they hadn't tried things in an effort to promote their health, or there was just a disregard for some of the, you know, uh, environmental factors in given neighborhoods. So I'm thinking Boston and New Haven, you know, we talk about, you know, built environment and access to green space, all those, you know, wonderful articles in public health. Um, So if someone says, go outside and take a walk, well, depending on, right, the individual, the family that that may not be right the most safe or um, feasible thing to do so there was some recognition of that but again not this in-depth understanding so i um worked with a nurse practitioner in new haven to really sit down to engage in qualitative inquiry to interview black girls to really get to know them before making recommendations and developing an intervention we we sort of know what the best practices are. I'll put that in quotes right. with regard to recommendation. This was about how do you um, actually provide, you know, something beyond superficial recommendations that feels like it is responsive from a culture, racial and cultural perspective to, yeah. to black families. And um, I kind of told you this story before. And when you, when you were explaining this to, this to me uh, about a little under a month ago, when we first spoke, um, when I would have a black mother in my office, very defensive when they were coming to see a health coach off top because of how they were spoken to. Um, and they're coming to me and 
in the beginning of my pediatric weight management program, it was very, you know, hey, increase fruits and vegetables, exercise more. And they're looking at me like, duh, like, yeah, like, <laughs> we, we know this. And they're, they're very defensive from the, from the beginning. Why do you, why do you feel like this intervention before they get to the, the health coach or to the nutrition and exercise piece or anything like that? Why isn't there this intervention of understanding the, the patient more before we start telling them what they need to do? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a variety of ways to, to understand that. I think, think historically, you know, the field again, and the medical model, the idea is you have an appointment, you show up and that this is the person that tells you what to do. That right. is just like pervasive from a historical standpoint. And there hasn't really been much attention if we think about it across disciplines with regard to the idea, right. That we should get to know individuals and that context matters versus this notion Right, that research, which is often, you know, historically hasn't been conducted in communities of color, uh, but that the research sort of dictates what's the best practice, and people tend to to operate in that way. Thankfully, we're starting to see, and I, when I say starting to see, I'm sort of thinking about really the multicultural movement, and, and my field as a psychologist and even in behavioral health was really like the 70s and 80s, sort of post civil rights, right? The idea of paying attention to who people are and their experiences. But we're still, I think, in a kind of an infancy stage with regard to understanding what that means and how that translates um, as we think about interacting with individuals. So I think there are other disciplines that are slightly further ahead um, that are beginning to work alongside health providers to say, you know, whether you're communicating, you know, specific information, et cetera, the ability to connect, right, with um, your, your patients that you're working with is going to be critically important. When we look at the health disparities literature, um, and certainly there are a variety of ways to understand different medical outcomes, but there's a huge body of literature that talks about the patient-provider interaction as being key, right? So individuals who, are, who don't have the experience of being listened to or believed by their providers versus this, you know, sort of dictatorship, so to speak. Right. Um, and again, not taking into consideration how the recommendations may not meet um, or align with some of the contextual demands. Right. It's just disrupting the the current system. How can, I'm of the belief that providers may not, some, let, let me just put this in context. Some providers may not know that they're at, how they're talking to their, to people of color, their attitude may change their, 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 their tone, the voice may change or how, instead of talking to them and explaining to them what's going on, they're talking at them. Mm -hmm. Like they, they don't know what can providers do to really check themselves first and mm -hmm. to be able to really start to learn how to talk to not just people of color, but people in general, but specifically in our conversation, people of color, like what they, what do they need to do to really check themselves first? I think awareness is what's key, right? So if you understand, um, and there's a level of awareness with regard to the importance of the provider patient interaction, ideally folks will be more mindful, right? That mm -hmm. when working with, you know, individuals with patients that my ability to connect really translates to, right? My ability to make recommendations that, you know, or, or to forge a relationship that are going to lead to better outcomes for my patient. And so 
I know that in medical school, one of my very dear friends um, <laughs> completed medical school while I was you know, in graduate school and would often talk about, and she's a psychiatrist, but would often talk about the lack of training with regard to just thinking about the clinical encounter. I know that's changed some mm -hmm. and that there's some medical schools that are implementing that level of awareness and even going deeper and talking about, again, from a, from a racial lens perspective, how to interact with clients of color in particular, but there's still much more to be done. So I would say to providers, be mindful that the encounter is critical. I mean, there may be, you may be having a stressful day, et cetera, but for the person that you're seeing in that moment, right, their entire experience is really going to be informed by their interaction with you. As a psychologist, I'm mindful of that. I may be having a bad day or, you know, have worked with someone prior to you and things may have happened, but I can't, I try not to carry that into my next session, so to speak, right? right. I would want uh, providers to be very mindful and to prioritize right, the clinical encounter, the interaction, certainly based on the historical account and the narratives of people of color when interacting with health providers in particular. And if you understand that the experience is almost the norm, right, is, is typically negative or has been historically, then ideally, I think being mindful of that uh, will shift some folks into, in terms of how they interact. Absolutely. I, that's a, that was a great answer. And I, I really believe it because just even, even now, preventative services and, and when I'm speaking with patients to get them to come in for, you know, just, just general checkups is it's a hard no because of an experience they had, you know, specifically talking about uh, African-American men, you know, when, when I'm ca calling them about preventative services that can save their life, they're like, no, I'm, I'm good because I know I go to the hospital, my doctor's going to talk to me sideways and I'm, it, is, it is not going to go well if that relationship was different and that doctor really knew, Hey, you're talking to this person, like they're not an adult, you know what, you know what I mean? Like that could, that could be, be a different conversation or a different experience for, for that person. Yes. It, it's interesting. As you were talking, I was mindful of the fact that in transitioning from the Northeast to now the Southeast and the Georgia area, there were many factors, obviously, but one mm -hmm. of the things that I looked forward to was the opportunity to perhaps have access to an increased number of providers of color for that reason. And I think whether or not we want to acknowledge that, I certainly have lots of conversations with people of color and who are at least desiring in some ways, right, to connect with providers of color with the hope that at least, right, mm -hmm. if I have a provider of color, maybe I won't have that, you know, that experience. And that's not guaranteed, but I think that's right. an important conversation that people do not want to talk about. Right. Um, and, and I have been able to access, uh, you know, a variety of providers, all of my um, providers are, are from traditionally underrepresented uh, racial and ethnic groups. And there is a difference for me than when I was living, you know, in areas with some of the best, arguably, right, best hospital systems. Yeah. That wasn't my, my personal experience. And that was a very significant, again, part of my conversation and transitioning to the South and accessing, and, and also for my child, right, being able to access providers that would take their time, that would explain, that would uh, be seemingly invested in my health. And that's all about, for me, the clinical encounter. Yeah. And I think that's a conversation that needs to be up there. Like there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, Hey, we need more black providers <laughs> you know, in, in all, in all perfect, like, you know, in therapy, behavioral health, primary right. care all over the place, because you're, you're right. When you have someone that looks like you there, there's an instant kind of relief, I guess. You know what I mean? Of okay, they can maybe understand me, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I live in Iowa, so you can imagine. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> but I, I have, I have great providers. You know, I, the people, my primary care provider is awesome. My, my mother has a great pr- uh, provider. There are those that are just not so great in, in anywhere, but I think, well, I, I would love your, I would love your thought on this. How do we get, especially in a, in a, the behavioral health profession that you're in, Sure. Um, how do we get more people to, you know, look at that as a profession to, to help, you know, people of color. I mean, I, I and I don't know what the numbers are right now. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I may be ignorant on the numbers. There may be a lot of people of color in your profession. I'm just not sure. I would love to get your thoughts on, well, are there one, how, you know, what's, what's it like? And then what do you think we can do to get people to be really looking at that profession? No, we have huge, um, you know, disparities with regard to the number of behavioral health providers, um, you know, licensed behavioral health providers that are able to provide direct services. Um, in the field of psychology in particular, um, for Black psychologists um, that are, you know, in the field, less than 4% or right around 4% mm-hmm. for Latinx, you know, under 4% um, and for other groups, you know, even less. So huge, um, you know, disparities. It, I, I tend to pay attention to the trends. And I know that at one point in time, maybe in the 80s or 90s, there was, you know, an increase, especially for those individuals that were seeking, you um, specifically in the field of psychology degrees that would allow for the provision of direct services. And that has started to decline again. Um, Lots of folks are using the language and talking about, you know, sort of pipeline. I think pipeline is critically important. Um, It is one of the reasons why I do have my foot in the fields of academia. It wasn't something that I honestly sought out. I was very interested in, you know, doing direct services, but the consulting and the, the, um, being an educator in higher education came as a result of my being concerned, right? Looking around and not seeing other providers of color. Um, and as a person who's intentionally working at an undergraduate institution in which over about over 50% of the students now at Agnes Scott um, self-identify as students of color, also noticing a trend in our department, which is one of the highest majors with, uh, with regard to students of color, um, not having sort of the experiences that they might need, even though they had the desire to go onto the PhD. So you're seeing from a pipeline perspective, right? Students going into college, graduating and realizing, oh, right? The experiences, the classes, et cetera, that might allow me to apply for a PhD program or a program that's going to allow me to become you know, a professional in the field, then have those. And so then we have this either gap or folks that just sort of um, move out of right uh, putting themselves in, in the role of maybe wanting to go on to become behavioral health providers. That's a piece of it. I think that's critically important. So part of my role, I actually um, have a grant right now, which is about racial justice in, in psychology in an effort to mentor Black and Latinx um, students uh, that are psychology majors, get them mentorship, get them research experience, et cetera. The things that I'm, I now know right, are critically right. important to providing those opportunities so that um, you know, students are in a position to go on beyond their four-year degree um, to, to be of service in the field. But you know, pipeline, you know, is one, that's one piece of it. And, and I also recognize that I'm one of few faculty members of color, right? right. And prior to my coming, you know, the fellowship didn't exist. I have, you know, colleagues that are well-intentioned, but again, the lens, um, I think of many providers, there's also research that states in the field of medicine and the field of psychology, that the people of color are more likely to go on to work in communities of color, to be more aware of the, you know, the issues and concerns and the needs of communities of color that still exists. And so with the numbers being so small, again, they're looking at community and need, quite frankly, being higher, we do have this disparity, unfortunately. So pipeline is one piece of it that we're trying, you know, trying to work on. But then 
I think there's also an issue of burnout, right? As you sort of matriculate um, along for folks because the demand is so high um, and maybe not access to, again, mentorship and resources that allow for the the, the continuity or experiences like mine, right? right? That allow me to may remain in the field, but also do different things that keep me interested and invested. Right. That mentorship is just so important to me. You, you know what I mean? Like I think having that mentorship and having somebody able to guide you through because there may be people who may want to get into your profession they just have the wrong information or don't know how to go about doing it and having that mentorship someone who's been there done that and can guide you through the ups and downs is just so important i agree yeah you know and no information to your point is often what i'm finding right that uh, students Mm -hmm. don't know or individuals don't know what they don't know and there yep. is a lot of information that you need to know um, yeah. in an effort to navigate. And I have been, I, as I say, sort of fortunate. So I do try to pass that along. But there's so much that goes on behind the scenes um, with regard to access to experiences, even negotiating, you know, um, opportunities um, that happens through a mentoring pipeline. And so if individuals don't have access to that, it really can lead to, uh, unfortunately, um, for me, I think the decline that we're seeing in mm-hmm. some cases and in other cases, folks that are leaving the field. So, you know, I kind of want to um, switch up and kind of talk to you more about um, this book you have. It's really important, especially now with, with young black girls and, and my daughter kind of having the same experience um, that you're talking about in the book. Can you kind of I- explain uh, the book? Tell us about it and, and what kind of uh, what motivated you or to, to, to write it? Absolutely. Um, so the book is called I Miss My Friend. It's on the shelf behind me there. It is a children's book that I co-authored with, I mentioned, um, one of my very best friends that I grew up with um, in Massachusetts, who is a child psychiatrist. And we often just over the years, again, our, our graduate level training and medical school training really kind of mirrored one another as we went along. Um, we're both committed, you know, as as behavioral health providers to, to serving communities of color and communities that are often um underserved, quite frankly, or have a lack of access um, to appropriate services. And so we often consult on cases. And as COVID was unfolding, um, just having conversations about what we were seeing. And in particular, while the nation was having conversations about this huge adaptation and what's going on, and the adults were trying to figure out what was going on, our question is, you know, is anybody paying attention to the kids? And of course, caretakers were, But at the same time, I think when attention is kind of focused and and you have adults that are trying to figure this out, right? Right. (laughs) And the demand being so heavy that it was easy, right? In some Mm -hmm. ways, you sort of wanted kids around you to kind of get in line, as I heard some parents say, right? Just come on, we'll, we'll figure this out. So we just started talking about, you know, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? And we, for years, actually have had the idea of doing a book series a book series that features, um, quite frankly, Black girls. We sort of looked at our childhood experiences and we always talk about the importance of representation and what we might recommend to our own families and youth that we work with, often books, right, as resources. And over the years, not being able to find um, books that are really focused on kind of mental health in particular mm-hmm. and that have characters of color. And so we said, there is no time like the present. So really in the summer of 2020, um, decided on a Sunday afternoon to just let's try this um, and started writing um, the manuscript for the book to highlight kind of the, the narrative of the young children in particular that we were seeing, but from a mental health perspective to offer dialogue and narrative within the story so that parents were really able to have their children connect to the experience of the main character, Malika, who's struggling 
right, amid COVID, but also as a starting point. Reading the story with your child, the idea being that this, you know, would spark conversation. And that we're so happy to report, you know, is the feedback that we're getting that young, you know, kids of color are really defying with the characters, but also because the images have masks, right? There's, we don't mm. talk about COVID in the title because we do think that the, the, the notion of, you know, missing your support system, you know, will persist beyond COVID, but we also were very intentional about the imagery. And so we're hearing from parents that their children are like, oh, there's masks, right? They can relate to what's going on in the book and they relate to the experiences of the main character who is feeling sad and not quite herself and missing, even though she's got siblings, missing her own social connections. Right. And you've got a psychiatrist in there, you know, in the virtual space, kind of coaching her through it. And then mom, you know, being able to and mirroring. Right. So using some of the techniques we use in mental health and mom being able to assist um, in essence. So we're certainly always happy to get, you know, um, feedback from parents and we intend to you know, build the series even more so. But that was really the purpose, starting conversations, giving families a way. To, to begin to have a conversation about what's going on with their youth. And, and I think that uh, youth are reporting to their parents and, and opening up after reading the book and talking about how they are feeling. I miss my friends too, you know, that sort of thing. Right. It, it's so interesting what you said kind of at the beginning what about adults really is trying to figure this thing out. And it was, it's easy, myself included, to yeah. be so caught up in, okay, how are we going to figure this out? to kind of push the kids to the side. Like, all you got to do is worry about school online. Like, you know, like you have no, you have no worries, but really it's not, they have worries. You know what I mean? You know, I'm, I'm going through this with my, my daughter, you know, you would, you would think that most kids would be okay with being at home, not having to go to school. She was struggling and you could, you could physically see it. You could, you could see it in her face. And then when, you know, when you ask, Hey, how are you doing? And she's just like, I just want to go to school. You know, like, and you can just tell, like, well, this is really heavy on her. How are children, and maybe you can speak to this, like, I even noticed now that my kids are back at school, it's still taking her some time to get back to her. Like, she's just qu- quite not there yet. You, you can see it. Mm-hmm. How, um, how have you seen this in kids as they transition back to school? Has it been like a, like a slow grind to get back to where they were? How, how's that experience been? Yeah. I, and this is part of the conversation, you know, that Dr. Banks and I have. It's, you know, as, as adults, as educators, as folks informing policy and making decisions, um, really wanting, that's for me, this priority to, you know, for us to take a step back and even use our own parallel experiences, right? It's hard, this idea of getting back to what we don't know, because we're not quite there yet, right, as a country. Um, And one of the things that we talk about as providers, right, that's instrumental in the growth and development of youth in particular is the idea of stability and routine, right, as promoting ideal development. That was disrupted for all of us, but we know, right, this is the thing that we preach, right, when babies are born, preschool age, et cetera, we need routine, right, you know, right. Expect, you know, to be able to expect when meal times are happening, et cetera, and that is disrupted at a very fundamental period. Um, so it is reasonable, should be reasonable for, for us to expect that, as you said, even though for some folks, right, there may be access to resources, like, oh, just worry about school, their entire experience, lived experience for years, right, depending on their age, has been disrupted. What is known to them right. in terms of going to school or the, the, the need to go to school, right, to have lunch, to be around friends has been disrupted and for a long period of time and in ways that continue to be inconsistent. 
So even as some folks return to school, you may have to stop, right? And then you're back to virtual learning. Maybe there's a hybrid situation. And we're also now paying attention, you know, for younger children to the clinical trials for the vaccine to determine what will happen next academic year. So we're not as a society quite yet there yet. Um, So I think it's reasonable in terms of what we're seeing with youth is like, okay, I'm back in school, but is this right? I've been out for so long, right? Right, right. It's different. I'm in school with a mask, right? I may be in school, social distance. I may be eating in my classroom. It's not the school that I left, right? And the experience that I left. And, And again, not for one week or two weeks, right? For an extended period of time, their schedules have been disrupted. So I think we've got to reframe and start talking about um, how we will all be different, mm. even as we think about, you know, whether that's vaccination or the idea of eventually, right, the COVID-19 um, pandemic kind of passing, we will forever be, all of us, right, will be forever be changed. Generation of youth that are able to remember, well, there'll be things yeah. and ways in which we do things differently. That wasn't the case prior. Forever. Um, and younger folks in particular are still developing an understanding, right, of how to articulate their feelings and what's happening for them in ways that if we're lucky, right, adults know how to do, but right. but the adults aren't faring well, right? I'm having a tough time <laughs> on certain days and I have to remind that uh, myself of that when I see my child having a tough day. It's like, okay, I'm, I, I could barely hold it together, right? Um, right? And I'm recognizing that it's been a year so I can imagine for him what his experiences might be like. If we kind of start there um, and then start to pay attention to um, youth, it's about maybe kind of arming everyone with the tools to really adapt to what has been a collectively traumatic experience. Absolutely. What can people do outside of getting the book? And I do recommend getting the book. I'll put the link, um, all the links in the description of this podcast. Um, but what can a parent do to start that conversation and to really start to help their child during this time? So I would say the foundation is still there in terms of the recommendations that we have, um, you know, for caretakers during any time of transition. It's to the degree that we're able, right, being, being intentional about having conversations. Usually, right, the idea is that we're able to prepare, you know, children for changes and what will happen. Now, it's an uncertain time. So I think we have to own that and include that in the conversation too. So even if that's a conversation about, okay, school, you know, we're returning to school, but there may still be some changes, right? There may be situations, depending on the school plan, where you may have to come back home. But it's about inviting youth into the conversation in a developmentally appropriate way and giving them information. It's kind of like stability where there is no stability, right? The least we can do is acknowledge where we all are. Um, Validate the fact that a year later, we're a little different. There's maybe some hope, but there's still some things that are very different. Um, So, when I, we sort of say in a tongue-in-cheek way, Dr. Banks and I, like, has anyone checked on the kids? It's Let's be intentional about checking in on them, um, especially in our busy days where, as you said, we're just trying to get through the day and we're happy if they get through Zoom school or whatever it is. Let's find times, um, you know, where we can check in as a family and I think as caretakers uh, to the degree that it's appropriate. I think modeling the fact that this and talking about the fact that, yeah, this is tough on all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and how I, how might we as a family, right, maybe leverage opportunities um, to make sure that either we're, you know, maybe we're sitting down, even if it's on the you know floor having a movie night or something, you know, and everybody's eating hot dogs, whatever it is. Can right. we find ways to connect? Can we find ways to check in with one another about how, you know, what support we might need? Um, and recognize that this has had a huge impact. So for me, the conversation is what's important. For younger, younger, younger ones, um, it is about, again, trying to create a sense of schedule 
um, amidst a very uncertain time because sleep patterns have been disrupted, you know, meal patterns have been disrupted. Right. And so making, you know, shifts and being flexible, but also trying to reestablish, right, different routines. Right. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Um, Miriam, thank you so much for your time. If if anybody listening wanted to get a hold of you and, and learn more about you and, and connect, where can, where can they find you? Absolutely. So my website where you can find me is mmjernaganassociates.com. That's J-E-R-N-I-G-A-N associates.com. I'm also uh, tend to uh, put a lot of information on my professional Instagram account, which is at mindfield, M-I-N-D-F-I-E-L-D underscore Dr. J. So either of those two places will lead you to my email and other ways to access me as well. Awesome. Well, again, hey, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really, I really love the conversation. I think it's a necessary conversation today. Um, and everyone, thank you for listening. I'll let you next time.